Okay, Romans chapter 11. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, in the good name of Jesus, we come before you. And uh, we just thank you for loving us so much. And we thank you for uh, just being able to come together as a body to, to study your word, Lord. And we just thank you so much for that. We thank you, Lord, that Lord, that you pour out your spirit, that you anoint your word, that you give us understanding into your word. And we just thank you so much for that. Uh, we pray as always, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, a will to obey the things that you're going to show us tonight. And we know, Lord, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are going to show us things from your word tonight. You're going to teach us. Um, every one of us, Lord, are going to have this just incredible a time to grow in the grace and the knowledge of who you are. We just say thank you so much for that. Um, we thank you for being with us. We thank you for being with us in the days that we're living in. We thank you that you go before us, that you watch over us, that you protect us. Um, we are just so thankful for that, Lord. Um, we pray for those who aren't with us tonight. We pray for those who are just uh, on, online with us, Lord. We lift everybody up, Lord. And we just pray that this will be a night that will bring glory to your name. And we just pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 11. Now, real quickly, uh, 9, 10, and 11 um, are very critical chapters. We're, we're, chapter 11 is like a, the, the third part that we're going through of, of this subject that Paul's talking about. But chapters 9 through 11 are, are critical. Um, and it's critical, but it's a continuous conclusion to the doctrine of salvation. Some people look at it and they separate it from... Eight, they kind of put 9, 10, and 11 in a separate category, but in reality, 9, 10, and 11 really are a continuation of the first eight chapters that deals with the doctrine of salvation. Um, as we look at it, and, and we went through the first eight chapters, the whole plan of salvation is based solely on God's word. Uh, we ended up in Romans chapter 8, looking at those wonderful promises from God, and, th and those are, you know, verses 31 through 39 in Romans chapter 8. It's like, man, when you're struggling, when you're down, when you're got all this stuff going on. Those are the verses you want to go to because they're so powerful and the promises that God provides are so absolutely incredible. They're promises declaring the eternal security that we have in Christ Jesus. It's like, you know, you know what, what, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And so there's great comfort and security as, as we get there. But the thing is, is God has also made incredible not just incredible, but incredible, unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. And in Paul's day, it seemed, it seemed to a degree that these promises seemed to be slipping away. Um, you know, and the idea is, are the incredible promises made unconditionally by God to Israel still intact? Or has he basically cast Israel away? That was kind of the question that was going on at that time. Because the Jewish presence in the church was, was shrinking you could see that Judaism was kind of moving to the side, that the church was moving up. Gentiles were becoming more prominent within the church. And so that was the question. But the point being, if God does not keep his, his word to Israel, then how can we depend on him to keep his word to us? It's, really, it's, it's that important and it's that critical and so critical in the plan of salvation that Paul really takes his time in three chapters to make his point about Israel and the fact that God is not finished with them. Now, as we see the nation of Israel today, you need to know this as we see it today. Israel is God's signature. It's his signature to Israel. It's his signature to us. It's his signature to the entire world. When you look at Israel, without going into a lot of detail, 
it is amazing that they're even a nation. It's amazing what's taking place over there. And when you look at it and realize that, that Israel, you're not talking about prophecies to be fulfilled. Israel is fulfilled prophecy. I mean, you're looking at something in our day, in our time, that was recorded in scripture thousands of years ago. And now in our time, it's been fulfilled. It's come to fruition. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that we live in. So we live in a very special time in the church age. Uh, to, to be able to see all of that. But bottom line is there's no plausible explanation for the existence of Israel except God. God is a plausible explanation for the nation of Israel. So, you know, as we started out here, we just reminded ourselves that God's word reigns supreme and that we can trust fully, uh, completely, explicitly in the truth found only in Jesus Christ and his word. We can always, always trust that. And so that's one of the points that Paul's making as he goes through that. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 11. And Paul starts off, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. So Paul right now, he's making this final transition on God's faithfulness to Israel by asking that this common rhetorical question that he asked. And he, he says, I say then, or, or I ask then, or, or literally, you know, therefore I say, has God cast away his people? He's asking, asking this rhetorical question. Now, in the Greek, his question is asked in, in asked to, to elicit a negative, uh, a negative reply. In the English, we would say it like this. God did not reject his people, did he? You know, it's like when you ask a question like that, you know, God did not reject his people, did he? That's, that's the way he's asking the, the question as he puts it out there. But to ensure that there's no misunderstanding, Paul reinforces his question with that characteristic thing he says, he says, certainly not, by no means at all, absolutely, positively not. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. So he asks a question eliciting a, 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 for a negative answer, and then he reinforces it that God has indeed not cast away his people. Now, what Paul does with this question is he sets the stage for the subject matter in chapter 11. And the subject matter of this whole chapter is a future restoration of the nation of Israel. As we went through chapter nine, we saw that the, the, we saw, we looked back to the, to the election of Israel in the past. And then what happened was it came up to the present and we saw Israel's present rejection of the Messiah. And now what we're doing is we're going forward and looking at the future restoration of Israel um, that, that God's going to bring about. And that's what we're seeing as we get into chapter 11. As we look at chapter 11, the language of this chapter leaves no room for any other conclusion than that God has not cast away Israel, that God has is continuing on with Israel, and there's no way that he's finished with Israel. Now, I, I want to say this because I want to say some strong things in this message, but there, there's no other possibility. When you go through this, you cannot come up with another conclusion other than to reject what the clear written word of God is saying. And it's very important that we understand that. Uh, I say that as God cast away his people, Certainly not. You could stop right there. You could stop right there. As clear as that is, you won't have to go any further. Paul just answered it, and he says certainly not. But he's going to take the time to break this down and explain it as we go, go through it. Paul's language is clear. And what he's going to do as he goes through here, he'll provide scriptural support. And the scriptural support that he provides, as always, is solid, to say the least. To apply this chapter to the church, especially to apply this chapter to the church, especially in our present day, it's reckless, it's irresponsible, and, and, and it's destructive. 
It's, it's all of those things. It's reckless, irresponsible, and destructive. Those who, who laud this argument do so, and they do it with all this great academic expertise. You know, when you'll talk to someone who believes in replacement theology or that, you know, the, the church has now replaced Israel, when you talk to them, it's almost like you have to hang on a sec. I got to get my dictionary. I, I have no idea what you just said. It sounds intelligent, but I got to figure out what you said before I can argue it because it, it's a very academic type of argument that comes forth. But listen, this isn't an academic book. This is a book that needs the Holy Spirit to be inspired for you to understand this book. This book is not an academic exercise. There's intelligence and all that in there. And you do have to have a sound mind when you study it. But this isn't like this isn't some book in a college. This is the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts for us to understand mm -hmm. that. But anyways, those who put this argument, they, they do so with all this expertise, academic, intellectual, all that kind of stuff. and. The, the truth is, what they're doing is they're promoting something that stokes the coals of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is from the pits of hell. Anti-Semitism anti is from Satan himself. Um, it sounds biblical, and they put it out as being biblical. But to say that the church has placed Israel is anything but. And again, it's important because Paul's taking the time to really spend some, some, some three chapters in the book of Romans to make us understand this subject. Now. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And then he goes, he starts out, he says, for also, I am an Israel, Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So what Paul does, the first thing Paul does is he presents himself as the first witness or the first example. Paul says, look who's, has God cast away Israel? He says, hey, fellas, look who's writing the book. <laughs> I'm Jewish, you know, I'm, 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 you know, this is who I am. He, he goes through it, he says, the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin, that, that's who I am. Paul's his first example. Paul is most definitely Jewish. He's a Jew who was born a Jew. Uh, Paul's faith in Jesus Christ proved that there were, there, were, there were some Jews chosen by God who had embraced Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm your first proof, the person who's writing the book. I'm your first example that has to be there. Now, Paul at one time, and we all know this, Paul at one time was the most bitter enemy the church ever had. He was the most bitter of all the enemies the church ever had. He persecuted them relentlessly. Um, you can read it in some of Paul's writings how, you know, he still, even as he walked with the Lord for years, it still, it, it, it hurt him for the things that he did. It really stuck with him, you know, along, along those lines. Paul was a person who broke up families, had people punished severely, um, you know, stood over Stephen when Stephen was, was killed and stoned to death. Um, when he was saved, he was actually going to, to wreak havoc, you know, you know, in Damascus. I mean, he was doing all this kind of stuff. Paul was relentless. And, you know, when you think about think about some of the worst enemies the church has ever had in our present time. And then one day them walking through the doors and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I got saved and I'm a Christian now. It, it really would be quite an amazing thing to see something like that. Whatever, you know, you know, as we look at this, what greater evidence could there be that God had not given up on Israel. I mean, when Paul's out there, considering who he was and how he got saved, what greater evidence could there be? If God could save Paul, he certainly could save other Jews. It was a whole idea. Paul says, if they could save me, he certainly could save other Jews. And some of us know Christians like that. Some of us are Christians like that. If God could save me, he could save anybody, right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's along those types of lines. Now, Wearsby pointed something out that I, I found very interesting. Wearsby pointed out that Paul's incredible conversion on the road to Damascus 
It's an illustration or a picture of Israel's future conversion at the return of Christ. And as I was reading, I found that very interesting to look at that. Paul was on the road to Damascus and how Paul was, was just going there and the, the great light and the incredible miracle of his conversion that took place. And, and, and he points this out. Three times in the book of Acts, Paul records his testimony. Three times he goes over it. When you record something three times in a book like that, the book of Acts, that tells you that Paul's conversion was rather important. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put that in there. Three times we have it recorded in there. Um, you know, amazing to see that. Um, Paul's conversion being similar to, to the conversion of Israel, Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 1, really points out what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ when Israel finally turns and accepts Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So as, as weird as we, I, it was the first time I really heard that, and I found that to be very interesting as I looked at that. thought I would throw that out to you guys to search the scriptures and go through it and, and see. But I, I find it very interesting um, as being a picture of how Israel ultimately will be saved. Verse 2, Paul goes on. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him, say to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. And we'll break that down just a little bit right there. But Paul says, the first thing Paul says in verse, in verse 2, he says, God has not cast away his people who he foreknew. Paul declares again, he declares again that God has not cast away this people. This time he does so in the positive sense. Before he did it from the negative side, eliciting the, the, the reply, the response to say, of course God has not cast away his people. Now he does so in the positive sense in there. But he says very clearly that God is not cast away his people. The Bible is so crystal clear concerning Israel. So crystal clear. Um, God has not cast away Israel in light, again, in light of all the fulfilled scriptures before us in our present day. Replace, replacement theology is not a difference of, a, of an opinion. It's a denial of God's clear written word. Let me say, because this is important. Replacement of theology is not a difference of opinion. It's a denial of the clear written word of God. And this is as clear as it gets right here. It cannot get any clearer than what we're reading right here. There's no difference of opinion whatsoever. He goes on, he says, whom he foreknew. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God had knowledge of Israel long before he ever chose him as a nation. Is that something? He knew him long before he chose him as a nation. Now there are stiff necked stubborn people. I mean, some of the things the Lord says about it, there are rough people, but God foreknew. He knew that he chose them anyways. 
And everybody can look in the mirror right now. And he chose us anyways, too. Okay, how about that? You know, he knew us and all the things about us. You know, what do you mean I'm cantankerous? You know, or what do you, what do you, you know, all these things that we have to pause. What do you mean I'm, I'm not grumpy? You know, it's like, but, but he knew us as well. Nothing about Israel surprises God. Nothing surprises him whatsoever. God elected Israel to salvation. Now, remember, we went back from the election to the human responsibility. And now we're coming back to some issues of election again. I was thinking about it. It's almost like a sandwich, you know, a sandwich of election, election, and in the middle of this human responsibility. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you do with all that? But we're back to some pieces that deal with election. And God elected Israel to salvation. In spite of Israel's overwhelming rejection of God, it in no way, Israel's rejection of God in no way proves that God has cast away his chosen people whom he for no, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into grace and everything. But it's God who made the promise. God's the one who did the choosing. God's the one who made the unconditional promises. Everything about Israel being selected, everything about them being preserved, everything about the Messiah coming through the nation of Israel, the word of God coming through the nation of Israel, that Jesus Christ coming to this world and setting up his kingdom, coming through Israel, it was all God's choice. God made the choice. He made the unconditional promises. It's all on God to make that happen. Now, again, it doesn't deny that there's human responsibility, and there is. But God, it's going to happen because God said it's going to happen. God made these choices, and he made it very, very clear. So he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then I love this. Or do you not know what the scripture says? Or do you not know what the scripture says? We need to know what the Bible says. We need, to, we need to know our Bibles, and we need to know our Bibles well. Paul goes in there, and this is not the first time in the book of Romans where he says, or do you not know what the scripture says? We need to know the word of God. As believers, we're expected to know what the Bible says. We're expected to know what the Bible teaches. Listen, when you're born again, you're, you're immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And in, in 1 John chapter 2, I think it's around verse 20 or somewhere around there. But in 1 John chapter 2, he tells us that we are given the Holy Spirit to teach us. We're told in John, in, in John I think it's 15 or 16, right around there, is that it tells us that the, the, the Holy Spirit is going to come along. He's going to come alongside us. And it tells us he's going to give us remembrance of scriptures and things along those lines. We have the Holy Spirit going within us. There's no reason for a Christian, for a believer, born again, to not be able to study the word of God and be able to learn and know and understand the word of God. He's, he's commanded us to be in fellowship. He's commanded us to be, be under teaching. He's commanded us to do all these things. And that's something that we should be doing. There's no excuse for it. To be, to be, to be say you're a Christian for 40 years and not understand just basic Sunday school stories, that's wrong. That's wrong. We all need to do it. And, 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 and you know, and I'm thankful for you guys. Because you guys, you guys, you guys love the word. You study the word. I wish that every church would do that. It's important to understand from the scriptures, all our doctrine, every doctrine that we have, every teaching that we have, everything we understand has to come from the word of God. All our doctrine has to be solidly based on scripture. Now, what's doctrine? Doctrine has to do with, with the doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of God, that's what theology is. Theology is a doctrine of God. 
the, the, the doctrine concerning Jesus, the doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, angels, man, sin, salvation, the church, prophecy, all these doctrines and all these teachings that we understand all have to be based on God's word. And it has to be solidly based on God's word. It can't be what you think or what you feel or based on your favorite Bible verse. It has to be based on the whole counsel of God's word. And then, of course, our understanding and, and doctrines concerning Israel, it has to be it has to be based on the whole counsel of God's word. Remember this about about doctrine. Good, solid biblical doctrine will protect you from deception. If your doctrine is not strong, if your doctrine's not biblical, you're going to be like a cow with a ring in your nose and they're just going to pull you any way they want. They're going to take you anywhere they want to go and you'll believe anything anybody tells you. And there's no excuse for it. We should all know the word of God. In Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, Paul gives a tremendous teaching and exhortation to the elders. And what he does is he tells what an under-shepherd and, an el and an elder is responsible for, and an under-shepherd uh, under or an elder is responsible to teach the whole counsel of God to God's church. You are responsible to teach the whole counsel of God to God's church. The key responsibility of an elder is the protection and the provision of the church, both from outside the church and from within the church as well. And that happens, and this is done by the systematic, solid, spirit-filled teaching of God's word. So again, throughout this letter of Romans, throughout the letter, Paul has expressed clearly that no follower of Jesus Christ should be illiterate in the scriptures. Nobody, nobody should be illiterate in the scriptures in the body of Christ. None of us should be. You got to get into God's word. And as you get into God's word, you allow God's word to get into you. But you got to get into the word of God. It's that, it's that important. Now, what Paul does, he says, God has not cast away his people he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says? Now he's going to go back and he's going to tell you what the scripture says about Elijah and how he says about he says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. So Paul brings his second witness or his second example from the scriptures, and he's going to talk to us about about Elijah. And this is something you can read on your own. Uh, what he talks about with Elijah is recorded in First Kings chapter seventeen through nineteen. And what Paul quotes first here. In verse 3, and I'll read it to you, but what he quotes first is Elijah's prayer made against Israel that's found in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 and verses 14. That's 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14. And here's what he says, verse 3. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, are left and they seek my life. Have you ever felt like you're the only Christian left on planet Earth? You know, have you ever felt like you're the only one who's the only believer left? Like, Lord, I alone am left. Everybody's forsaken you. Everybody's gone. Everybody's turned their backs on you. I'm the only one here standing up for you. And that was basically what Elijah was saying. What's interesting, though, about Elijah is he's saying this. He was coming off a tremendous spiritual victory, uh, uh, just an amazing spiritual victory. God gave him victory on Mount Carmel over the 450 prophets of Baal. And it was a situation, you go in there and read it, but, but he says, well, if Baal is God, and see what Baal was, Baal had dealt with fertility, and, and Baal supposedly dealt with the rain and with the crops and the produce and all these types of things. We know that only comes from God. 
but they were uh, they were given that to Baal and saying Baal was the one who was providing that. So Elijah comes on the scene and he says, he says, if if Baal is God, let's build two two altars. And on the first altar, we'll put a bull on this one and a bull on this one. And you call down fire from heaven. And if, if, if Baal is God, fire will come down from heaven and consume the bull on the altar. And he says, and I'm going to set up my altar. And if, 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 if the Lord God, Jehovah, if he's God, then he's going to bring down fire and consume. And he says, now you go first. You get to go first. Okay. And there was 450 of them. And they did all kinds. They were cutting themselves and all kinds of stuff and whatever they could do to make this whole thing happen and everything. And, and nothing, it wasn't, you know, you know, they're doing it. Nothing's coming down. And, and Elijah, now this is Elijah, you know, we'll get to what happens to him after the victory. But Elijah, he, there was one point where he asked him, he says, maybe Baal's, you know, going to the bathroom. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's in the outhouse or something. You know, maybe he's a little busy, he can't do everything. Well, it went to the end of the day and they couldn't do it. And then Elijah said, okay, the odds aren't good. Let's make the impossible more impossible. And he had water poured on the altar three times. It was soaked. There was a pool of water around the altar. And then he called on the Lord and the Lord sent down fire and the Lord consumed everything. He consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and all the water around the altar. And then the prophets of Baal tried to tuck tail and run. And then what happened was he's like, no, no, I get those guys. And they brought him down. And he slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal. He slaughtered them. He slaughtered them. Now, look, you hear that. It's like, wow, listen, sin needs to be killed. You don't need to be polite and nice to sin. And when you see these things like Baal and idolatry and all this stuff, it needs to die. If it's in your life, kill it. That's the only good thing to happen to it. And that's what the picture was as we took a look at that. And so he took out these prophets of Baal and he slaughtered them. And it was just incredible what he did. And then after that, three and a half years have passed. So after this three and a half period, then the drought came to an end. So it was a drought that had lasted for three and a half years. And Elijah is, is an, just as a side note, an interesting study. It's interesting, these pictures you get with Elijah, because it was three and a half years, if that rings a bell prophetically speaking, there was three and a half years, there was a drought. And then after three and a half years, the rain came. During the three and a half years that Elijah was out there away, he stayed with a Gentile woman and her son, and the Lord provided for the Gentile woman that as long as he was there, there was provision for the Gentile woman and for the son in the house as long as Elijah was there, he provided for them. We also see that Elijah called down fire from heaven, reminds you something of Revelation chapter 13, one of the prophets in there. And then as we'll see later on, after the fire came down, we, we see that that some people were pretty upset with these prophets in, 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 in the revelation. And when he called down fire and got rid of these prophets of Baal, Jezebel got, you know, she had a, she was a little upset. She got a little going there because, because he did that. But just some interesting things to look at and ponder prophetically. I say that because sometimes we look at the days ahead of us and we get worried and, oh, what will I do if I lose my job? What will I do if, if I lose this? What will happen if this happens and everything like that? When I read the Bible and I see, that God provided for the Gentile widow and her son, I believe that God will provide for me, for my wife, and for all of us in the body of Christ. And he will take very good care of us. The Gentile bride will take care of us very well. So just a little side note there. Anyways, the rains come. And at this point, Ahab told Jezebel everything that happened. 
You know, he said, you know, you know sometimes I just have to say it. Sometimes there's news we have to give you, ladies, and we just don't want to give you the news and give you the, we don't want to say it, you know, because we know it's gonna it's gonna be a problem and everything. And I can imagine poor Ahab going in there. Oh, this conversation is not gonna be good with Jezebel. How's it going, honey? How was your day? Well, you know that guy, Elijah. <laughs> Well, he made your, your your prophets look like like idiots, called down fire from heaven, then he killed every one of them, you know? You think that, that wasn't a very good conversation to have that day. So anyways, he tells her that. Well, you know, Jezebel responds and she sends a messenger to Elijah and she says, you are dead. I mean, she must have, I don't, she must have been something, I don't know. But whatever it was, it it shook Elijah to the core. He got he he was just afraid, and you guys could read about it. But you would think that Elijah would have met Jezebel head on. He had this great spiritual victory, and you would think they would have met head on, uh, you know, following this awesome spiritual victory. But again, instead he took he took tail, he, he, he ran from the situation. Now always remember this: how many have won in the battle? And sadly, lost in the victory. How many win in the battle, but you lose in the victory? You lose in the victory. We always have to be on guard as Christians. We always have to be on guard. I forget who said this one, but they said, "Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle." Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle, and that's kind of what happened to Elijah as he went through it. Elijah's no different than us. Elijah's no different than us. He's a man used greatly by God, but he's no different than us. And those are the things that we all face. Now, for Israel at the time, it was a dark time in the nation of Israel. Um, the apostasy in the nation was at an all-time high. It was horrible. It was the northern kingdom. And, and the northern kingdom was just apostate out of the gate. And it was just really bad. It was really dark. And it was really evil there. Um, Elijah, again, he was at the low point. The worst spiritual defeat. You, get. you imagine defeating 450 prophets and then this one single solitary woman screams at the top of her lungs, I'm going to kill you. And he runs and he runs from it. I mean, you were just fighting these, these prophets and all that and do, calling fire down from heaven and all, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. And then he hightailed and runs. So he's right now at a very low point of spiritual defeat. In 1 Kings 19.4, he's so low, he says this, he says, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And that's 1 Kings 19.4. So he came off this battle, this victory. And, and not long after this battle, this victory, this is his attitude. Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He wants to die. He doesn't want to live. He doesn't want to go on anymore. He's at his lowest loneliest, most depressed and fearful time of his life. He's at the lowest point of his entire life. And he felt that he was all alone. He felt that he was all alone. Again, he felt he was the only one left in all of Israel who remained true to God. And so as he prays and you look at this prayer, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. This is an intercessory complaint is what it is. He's praying out a complaint against the nation of Israel. He's praying against these people as he does that. Verse four, but what does the divine response say to him? What does God say to Elijah when Elijah puts his prayer out? God answers this prayer. And what does God say? He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
It was true that Israel had killed the prophets who God had sent. It was true that Israel had torn down the altars. Yet was Elijah the only one left in all of Israel? I mean, these things had happened. There was apostasy. Prophets had been killed, altars torn down. But was Elijah the only one left in all of Israel? Paul gives to us God's response to Elijah, and I love it. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Again, it was true. Most of the nation had rejected God, and they proved so, again, by killing prophets, tearing down the altars. Yet God, God was not limited to one fearful, depressed prophet. God says there is a faithful remnant in the land. There's a faithful remnant in the land of Israel. God had reserved, God had preserved for himself 7,000, 7,000 who remained faithful to him. And that's what Paul wanted to say, wanted him to know. He goes in verse five, he goes, even so then, and that was what, that was a, the Northern kingdom, you know, you studied the Northern kingdom was always, it was always a mess in the Northern kingdom, but for the Northern kingdom to be at its darkest point, Paul says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So from this historical illustration supported by scripture, Paul draws this conclusion. It's a historical illustration from the scriptures, and Paul draws a conclusion for his present time. And the conclusion that applies to the present time is there was a remnant then at the time of Elijah. And there is a remnant right now. God is still have a remnant in the nation of Israel. And I got news for you. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has a remnant working today because God is God. And that's who God is. He's made his promises. And he continues to work through a remnant that he has in the nation of Israel. As it was in Elijah's day, so it was in Paul's day. So it is in our day. God has a remnant, God never leaves himself without a remnant. He never leaves himself without a, re a remnant. Malachi 3.6 and Hebrews 13.8 both tell us that God never changes. God is always the same. God is always the same. Now, it goes on, and I, this is, I, I love the terminology that he uses here. He says, even so that at this present time, there is a remnant. Notice according, according to the election of grace. I like that, according to, the, to, to the, the election of grace. It's because of God's electing grace that there has been a remnant among the Jews, both before, before the church, before the church age, and during the church age, and will continue up until the return of Jesus Christ, but it's all according, it's all according to the election, the electing grace of God, the electing grace of God. Verse six, he goes on, he says this, he says, and if by grace, if this electing grace, if this elect, electing according to the grace of God, he says, if it's grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. So here, Paul emphasizes the antithesis between grace and works. He makes clear that grace and works 
are the exact opposite of one another. Grace, grace and works are absolutely opposite. They're polar opposite of one another. This is a scriptural principle that we have to embrace. Grace and works do not go together. They do not mix. They do not meet whatsoever. They never have, and they never will. Grace, grace cancels works, and works cancels grace. You can't have both of them working side by side. They're not partners. They're not two sides of the same coin. It's not that. They're absolutely opposite of one, one another. Concerning our salvation, we know the verse very well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, but not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But the election of Israel, the election of us as well, the election of Israel and the election of us is all of grace. We need to understand that. It's all of grace. It all begins with grace. It continues with grace. It is sustained by grace. And it will forever be because of the grace of God. It is all of grace. And we need to always remember that. We will forever be humble recipients of the astonishing, the unknowable, the inexplicable grace of God. Who can explain the grace of God? Who can, who can explain the unmerited favor of God? Who can explain the free gift of God? Nobody can do that. Nobody can explain it. It's all on God's side. Now, what Paul says here, again, it nullifies all notions. I mean, Paul has hit it twice with two witnesses. And both witnesses done the same thing. Both witnesses nullify any notions concerning this replacement theology, which is something they didn't, they didn't quite have replacement theology back then. But it, it nullifies all notions concerning it, that God is finished with Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Like, there's no need for discussion. It's not something that needs to be discussed. Sit down and have a conversation. I'll be honest for, for myself personally. When, when, when someone comes in and wants to talk to me about it, like wants to argue their point to me about it, I just, I walk away. I, I don't have time for the conversation. I do not have time for the conversation whatsoever. Now, if someone comes in and, and they need understanding, they don't understand the difference, I'll take all the time in the world. But if you're on that side of the camp and you want to argue and make your point to me, you got no point. The only point, <laughs> you got to be careful here. So, but the only point they got is on the top of their head, because I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's just, it's, 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 it's wrong. It's wrong. Again, what Paul says here nullifies all notions concerning this replacement theology. All their academic school, none of it, none of it does anything. All it does is it obscures the clear teaching of God's word. Now, simply put, and this is what you have to look at, and this is what you need on here. Simply put is this. Election was by the grace of God. Election, the election of Israel was by the grace of God. And since their election is by God's grace, there is no work on their part that can cancel out God's work. That's what we're seeing right here. One cancels out the other. So if this is the grace of God, and it is the grace of God, because the Bible says it is, and the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put it down on these pages, that it is the grace of God. So since it is, and it is the grace of God, there's no work on their part that can cancel out God's grace. You cannot cancel out God's grace. You can't do it. If Israel could do something to make void God's elective grace, then it will no longer be grace. It's done being grace. Now it will be works. But it's grace. And they can't do it. It's absolutely impossible. There's nothing Israel can do to make void God's elective grace as we take a look at that.
Now, one thing, just before I get on to the next few verses here, one thing I want to just talk about is, is he talks about the remnant. He talks about the remnant, about a small, a very small group. And I just want a few words on that. I want to say this, first of all, that massive numbers are not key to God accomplishing great things. We need to understand that huge, massive, gigantic numbers, they're not the key for God accomplishing great things. We need to understand that and we need to know that. God is the key. God is the key to his accomplishing great things and accomplishing great things to his glory. God is the key, not all these massive numbers. You can always tell a great work of God. And you want to know how you can always tell a great work of God? You can always tell a great work of God by who gets the glory. See, if God gets all the glory, then it's a great work of God. But if you got a bunch of men who want to congratulate others for being a great prayer warrior, a great servant, or a great this, or a great that, or a great this and that, I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have a great work of God going on. You don't have a great, a great work of God is when God gets all the glory 100%. He gets it all. As we look at this, we need to remember when we think about a remnant that God builds from the inside out. And we need to remember, we talked a little bit about it in our study this morning, but God is always more interested in the servant than he is in the service. And some examples I thought of, you know, we, we go in Genesis, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God, and only eight people entered the ark and went through the flood and came out on the other side of the ark. Eight people. Out of how many people were in the world at that time? There was, there was in the billions of people in the world at that time. It's very easy to do the math and figure it out. Very easy to do. Eight people. And God did a mighty work through them. And God made the continuation of everything going on in this world through eight people. But Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found grace. One man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of God. We think in Judges chapter 6 and 7. How God used 300, 300 to defeat 120,000 Midianites, 300. Could you imagine General Gideon talking to his men and explaining to them what God's going to do and everything like that? You what? You sent how many people home? You did what? I'm more, I'm impressed with the guys who hung out and stayed with them and stayed right through the whole battle. I'm impressed by those guys. They, they really say something to me. But God took 300. God had apostles who were confused and didn't know what to do. And he found a little boy with a lunch with a few loaves and a few fishes and fed how many people were there. See, God doesn't need big numbers. He needs a remnant. He doesn't need big numbers to do a mighty work. And that's a mention throughout the entire scriptures about this remnant. Zechariah 4.10, who has despised the day of small things? Who's despised the day of small things? God doesn't despise small things. God loves the small things. God loves to glorify himself in, 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 in what everybody says is impossible, washed up, can't do it, no good. This, God loves to do that. And I say that, and I say that for us because look, we look around and we're, we're a small group and it's, it's hard because we've got some in, some out, this and that, you know, people. Are, but listen, God's doing a great work. Don't lose sight of that. God's doing more than any one of us can imagine, way more than anyone else can imagine. And you want to know why? Because he's God. 
because he's God and that's why he's doing great things. I don't know what they are. I don't, I don't know all the things that God's doing, but I'm looking forward to getting to heaven to find out what those things are. It's going to be a lot of fun to get to heaven and hear what God was doing. But God does not despise the day of small things. Now, for a lot of us, we've grown up in the age of the mega church. I mean, I know I have, you know, I've grown up. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a rural church and then suddenly, you know, I saw these mega churches and all these things. I thought like, wow, this must be it. You know, God's moving and grooving. This is it. What did I miss in those little old country churches that didn't have an air conditioner, had those cheap fans. They you couldn't get the windows open. And, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, that's what I grew up in, you know. And, 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 and now we get to these mega churches and big worship teams and screens on the wall. And man, God's doing it. This is awesome. Well, I'm learning over the years, God doesn't need those massive numbers. He doesn't need those massive numbers to accomplish his will. We've defined success and a work of God as follows. This is what we've done. This is, this is what I grew up speaking of myself. Start a home fellowship. It grows. Buy a building. Go to multiple services. You know, get your teachings over here. Get this online. Get on the radio. Do all this and that. Get, and, and now what we've defined here. As we have, are you up to three services yet? You know, you're doing this, are you doing, you know, and that's what we've defined as success. We have these big buildings filled up with all these massive numbers. And don't get me wrong, praise God if he's working in that and people's eyes have changed, praise the Lord for it. But the thing is, is the only time it's a work of God is when God gets all the glory. It's the only time it's a work of God. And I'm convinced that while we are moving in, to the darkest, the darkest days of human history, I'm totally convinced that we are about to see, I'm totally convinced that we are about to see God move in a mighty and awesome and powerful way. I'm totally convinced of that. God's greatest work is before us. And what I would say is, do not allow, do not allow our preconceived notions to prevent us from seeing the great work that God is going to do. Do not. Do not allow our preconceived notions, because we all have preconceived notions in us. Do not allow our preconceived notions to prevent us from seeing what God's going to do in the days that, that lay before us. Very important to see that. Okay, verse 7. What then? What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always so he starts out as he goes into this verse he says what then you know paul's made this incredible thing that god has a remnant that god is always working through a remnant he continues to work through a remnant so he says what then what what are we to conclude from what we've just said he says what do we conclude from this thing that i've just said well one of the things that we conclude is israel then and israel now there's a faithful remnant and a faithless majority one of the things you conclude from it that even though there's a faithless majority in israel there is also because of the elected, the, 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 the elective 
grace of God, according to the elective uh, grace of God, there is a faithful, a faithful remnant within the midst of Israel. Now he goes on, he says this, he says, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What was it that they sought that they could not obtain? He says, they haven't obtained what they seek. What was it that they, they, that they can't get a hold of? They strove to, to obtain right, the righteousness of God through the works of the law. They, they, they were seeking to get righteousness, but they were doing it through the works of the law rather than submitting to the righteousness of God through faith. That was a the problem. They wanted to obtain righteousness, but they wanted to do it through the works of the law. He says they seek it, but they have not obtained it. What they were doing was they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And this is something we see all around us. How many people do you know who try to, to establish their own righteousness? I hear it all the time. You know, well, I'm a good person. Well, I even hear people, well, I'm a good Christian person. I love it when they say, oh, I'm a good Christian. I, I keep all the Ten Commandments. Ooh, that tees me up. <laughs> I'm in on this one. You know what I do to them? Well, yeah, what are the Ten Commandments? <laughs> And it, and it really, it really, it turns from there. But how many people try to establish their own righteousness? They try to establish it. The elect, he goes on, he says, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. He says, but the elect have attained it. The elect, on the other hand, those who are their remnant, according to grace, responded to God's mercy, and they received God's righteousness of faith. They responded in mercy, this remnant, this small faithful group, and, and, they, and they, they received the righteousness of God by faith. The faithless, unbelieving majority, as a result of the refusal to submit to the righteousness of God by faith, basically what happens is they were made hard, blind, and callous is what it was. It's any one of those words you can pick it. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have, 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 have obtained it. And the rest, speaking of those who have not obtained it, speaking of the faithless majority in there, the rest of them were blinded. They were blinded. They were made callous. They're, they were hardened is what he's saying as he takes a look at that. This is what happened to them. And what we see here in the hardening of them and the blindness of them, the callousness of them, here what we see here, we see the judicial punishment of God taking place on the people. Israel had become so insensitive or to, to, to spiritual realities that they are now subjected to judicial hardening is what it is. It's in essence is what it's saying is, here it is. Do you believe, it's the truth. It's looking you right in the face. Do you believe this truth? No, I don't believe it. No, I'm not gonna believe what you're presenting to me. And the judicial judgment, the judicial thing that comes down is because you won't believe, now I'm gonna bring a hardening, a blindness, a dullness, a callousness upon you and make it very hard for you to believe. And the more you don't believe, the more hardened and the more callous that you do become. The hardening that they experience could be described, as you take a look at it, as a spiritual drowsiness. Yeah, that was like the, my first 15 years at church. I had a spiritual drowsiness every Sunday when I was there, huh? Wow. But this could be described as a spiritual drowsiness, or as Morris puts it, a deadness towards spiritual things. You know, sometimes, and you guys might do this, someone says they're a Christian. And so you stoke a conversation with them to see where they're, where they're at. You're, you're kind of checking their oil. Okay, you're a Christian. Good. Let's have a conversation. And you start talking about some, some Christian things. 
and you're just looking in there and the elevator stuck on the second floor. It ain't getting no higher. You know what I'm saying? You know, you realize like, wow, maybe, maybe this guy, you know, and you, you know, you check it out because there's, there's a spiritual, you know, deadness. There's a spiritual stupor. They, they don't, they're, they're dead to everything. They think they have a righteousness, but they don't have a righteousness as you're talking to them. Now, when a person is confronted with the righteousness of God by faith, and yet they are determined to go their own way, dullness, blindness, and callousness is the outcome. Those that could believe, those that should believe, refuse to believe, and now they cannot believe. And now they cannot believe. And that's what happens in there. Those, those that could, that should, but refuse to believe. And now they're in a position, and the position comes from judicial punishment, judicial punishment from the Lord, that now they can't believe. Now they have a dullness, a hardness, or a callousness upon them. Then what Paul does is he's going to support it. He says, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And then Paul says, just as it is written. See, because Paul's going to support everything he says with the scriptures. You go through here and everything has scriptural support as you go through it. Paul supports what he's saying with the scriptures. And what he does, he first, in, in verse 8, he quotes from Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. And he also quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 10 and verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 10 and 13. But what he says in there, he says, you know, you, 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 you refuse, you could have, you should have, but you refused, and now you cannot believe. And he supports it with these scriptures. And the scripture says God has given them a spirit of stupor, this spiritual drowsiness that has come, come upon them, a spiritual stupor. Eyes that should not see, ears that they should not hear. He says, to this very day, it's taken place to this very day. Verse 9. He says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to, to let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So Paul, first he quotes from Moses and Isaiah. Now he goes on and he quotes from David. So he quotes from three men, three writers in the Old Testament. He quotes from three of them. And from David, these last two verses, he quotes from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. 9 and 10 is a quote from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. He says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. This table, as he says, let their table, what the table speaks to is their blessings from the hand of God. The table speaks to the blessings that come from the hand of God, the wonderful blessings that should have led them to Christ, these wonderful, beautiful things that should have led them to Christ, Yet this wonderful provision of, of nourishment, a table, when you have a table, I know when I think of a table to come home and the place where you sit and the place where you have your meals and the place where you, you, you meet with your family, a fellowship with your family and all that, this, this place of blessing that takes place, a nourishment and provision that takes place, this place that had provision and nourishment and a blessing from God to Israel, it actually became the cause for the re rejection of God for the rejection of God, and it also became the cause for God's judgment upon them. 
He says here, he says, let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. The wonderful blessings that God had given to Israel, it should have led them to Christ. It should have led them to Christ. When you go through, when you go through the Old Testament and we understand as born again believers, the things that's in there, it, it's really stunning to look at that. And you just say, man, they should have come to Christ. It was all right there. They should have come to Christ. But again, these blessings, it kept them from Christ. The blessings that they received actually kept them from Christ. And again, these, these wonderful blessings turning into burden, not just burdens, but turning into judgment against them. When I looked at that, I thought, I thought to myself, I said, how many do we know like this? How many people do we know like this? How many do all of us know like this? They have heard the righteousness of faith in Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've heard it, but they've refused it. They just, they just refuse it. They turn it down. And then they're hardened and they're callous and they're blind. I mean, you have a point in there where, where you can talk to them and they're open and you get excited because you think, wow, you know, they're, they're hearing it. and You get all excited about it. And then they just, they refuse it for whatever reason. They refuse it at that point in time. They become hard and callous and blind. And as you look at these people, and I've seen it with so many of them over and over again, I look at them and God just blesses them and blesses them and blesses them and blesses them. And yet what happens is those blessings that can only come from God because every good and perfect gift comes from above. And these blessings that come to them, you see it just turns them away from Christ. They get further and further away from Christ. Their hearts become hardened. They become proud of the blessings. They forget, you know, they, they start worshiping the blessings and not the blesser. And that's what happens with these people. How many times do we see it? It happens so often. So, so proud of their job, so proud of their cars, so proud of their homes, so proud of their vacations, so like, like peacocks strutting around. And they've turned their back on Christ. And that's what you see here with the nation of Israel. They've, they've, they've turned, they've turned their backs on board. The thing that should have brought them, the blessings that should have come to them. Let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Verse 10. And let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Because, because the faithless, unbelieving majority have, re have refused to re receive the truth of God, their backs will be bent under the weight and guilt of punishment forever. Because the faithless, unbelieving majority have refused to receive the truth of God, their backs will be bent under the weight of guilt and punishment forever so much to see that so much to see that and how many people just in our country alone the blessings upon this country the blessings upon america you know the, the song god shed his grace on me he has i mean america's a blessed country all you have to do is go to other countries to know that and the hardness of the heart towards god how they've turned their back on god it's really something to take a look at that now, what Paul's done in this section, Paul made clear in this little section that we read right here, that although the majority of Israel are faithless and unbelieving and under divine judgment, the existence of a remnant according to, to, to grace is clear proof that God has not repudiated, that God has not cast off or dismissed his people. We need to understand that. 
there is in Israel a majority that is faithless. There is a remnant that is faithful. But just because the majority who is faithless at this present time is acting the way they are and they're unbelieving, it does not mean that God is finished. The fact that God has a remnant that remains means that God is still faithful and God is still true to what he's done and God has not cast away his people. Numbers, numbers are not the issue. Numbers are not the issue in any way, shape, size, or form. There was a remnant according to grace in Elijah's day, in Paul's day, and in our present day. And again, this bears evidence that God still has a plan for his people. It bears evidence that God still has a plan for his people. Next week, when we get into it, we're going to conclude Paul's discussion um, on the future restoration of Israel. And we're going to do it concerning um, the place of Israel and of Gentiles, the place of Israel and Gentiles all together in the plan of God. We're going to look at it from that, you know, as we as we get in and we finish out uh, most of chapter 11 next week. So, but um, let's pray. Father, in the good name of Jesus, we love you. We love you so much, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the sureness and the certainty of your word. You're an awesome God. You're a mighty God, Lord. Your word stands sure. Your word is true. Your word is powerful. Your word is a two-edged sword. Lord Jesus, you are faithful. You're steadfast. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are so glad that you have saved us, that you've called us your own, that we belong to you. And I just pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we will learn to stand first, to stand, stand fast, to, to stand solidly on your word. That we will learn to keep our hands to the plow and then never look back. That we would live our lives with everything we have for you, Jesus. That we will live every day of our life as if, it, as if it's the last day we have to live for you on this planet. That we would just look at the days that we're living in. That we would live carefully. That we would live circumspectly, Lord. That we would live aware of the times that we're living in. That we would live knowing, Jesus, that your return is at hand. We pray that you would give us opportunities. Opportunities, Lord, to, to, to do the things that you've called us to do. And that as those opportunities arise, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and empower us to do things for you to your glory. Lord, you're a great God. You're an awesome God. You're the true God. You're our God. And we just love you so much. We love you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you've gone to prepare a place for us. Thank you that you're coming again to receive us to yourself. Thank you for the certainty of the future that we have in you, with you. We just love you so much, Lord.
And Lord, we pray, pray for the prodigals, Lord. Pray for those who, for whatever reason, Lord, have walked away. For those who think that there's something better in this world than you, Jesus. Those who've been hurt, turned off by things that happened inside the church. Hurt and turned off by the misrepresentation that so often takes place, Lord. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would open up their hearts, their eyes. That they could see you for who you truly are. That they realize the love that you have for them. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, according to your grace, Lord, that you would draw them back to yourself. And we lift that up before you. We pray for the purity of the church. We pray for a church that will glorify you in everything that we do. Church, it would be true to your word, Lord Jesus, and lift you up always and only at all times. But again, Lord, we love you. We love you so much and we love you because you first loved us. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for being in our midst. Thank you for watching over us. We love you. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.